3: This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded.
4: This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly
5: change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance.
4: Women to watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe.
0: True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given.
4: Who are encouraging more women to pursue their
6: dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own
4: voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women To Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women To Watch. I'm Sue
6: Rocco, and it's so great to be back here on 6abc.com. And for our radio lovers, also broadcasting on 1210 Talk radio. Um, I want to thank, as always, our our watch team of corporate partners and sponsors, who really are the backbone of the show. And later today in the show, you'll be hearing from one of them, Sherry Morrison, will be bringing us Victoria Wright, who is a designer, and she's going to be um, telling us all about her work and business here in Philadelphia. Um, if you're new to the show and you want to find out more information or to see who's coming up be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. So now I'm very thrilled and honored to welcome to the show, Katie Fitzgerald. Katie is the president and COO of Feeding America. Katie, welcome to the show.
7: Sue, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so delighted to be here with you and with the audience today.
6: Thank you. I'm, I'm so happy to have you. And I know that, my gosh, your work has been so, so important over the past couple of years. And, you know, we're going to dig into what some of those challenges have been and hopefully hear some good news from you about how things are turning around. Um, I wanted to give our listeners a sense of who you are and where you came from. So I wonder if you could just describe for me the community in Michigan where you grew up.
7: Yeah, no, I'd love to. So um, I hail from East Lansing, Michigan, which is the home of um, Michigan State University, uh, my uh, alma mater for my undergrad. And um, I really had a a great childhood experience, not without um, some challenges to be sure, but uh, I'm the daughter of two educators. My uh, dad was a professor and then later an associate provost at the university. My mom was an English teacher, and I'm uh, the baby of the family. So uh, I have an older brother and older sister. And I was really fortunate to grow up in um, a middle class neighborhood. Uh, I lived on if you can imagine this cul-de-sac. And what's what's kind of unusual, I think is that it was very racially diverse. Um, And I think literally half the the houses about eight houses in our little cul-de-sac were uh, African American families other half were uh, white families. Um, And so I grew up in that neighborhood with a real rich experience, um, both with some religious diversity around my community, as well as racial diversity. And I think that that informed a lot of um, my worldview, and the ways in which I wanted to be um, working in the space of creating opportunity for everyone uh, later in my life
6: yeah D- tell me did did mom and dad talk to you about the advantages of this diverse you know neighborhood and community and and kind of um talk to you about the you know the positive impact that would have in your life you know it's so funny
7: <laughs> not really you know i mean I, I don't know sue i i think we're kind of maybe similar age group but in the 70s and the 80s like parents didn't talk to you a lot it's <laughs> it a little different parenting style so we just lived it so i mean i have really vivid memories um m- my best friend growing up was uh, her family attended the african methodist uh, church ame church i'm not sure i got that acronym completely right so i'd go to her with her to church my other good friend um attended synagogue and i would go with her to synagogue and uh, I grew up, uh, my parents were, uh, my family was uh, Eastern Orthodox. My mother's Serbian um, ethnically, but there was no um, a Serbian Orthodox church in our community. So we attended a Greek Orthodox church. So I got very involved in Greek culture, even though I'm not Greek at all, and Greek dancing. And um, so I had this like rich tapestry of very different cultural um, experiences that I just was immersed in. And my folks didn't really talk to me much about it other than I would say this, which I think is really important. They valued it. Right. Mm -hmm. By virtue of saying, oh, yeah, go with go with Laura to Hebrew school and oh, yeah, you can go to church with this person and, um, you know, do all these different sorts of things. It just became a part of understanding the world and understanding um, that not everyone has the same uh, racial cultural uh, experiences and identities as we did.
6: Yeah that's really wonderful because you could sense that they were embracing it even though they weren't verbalizing it right. they were perfectly okay with it go go with whoever you know yeah. go go learn about that go yeah
7: about that and and with an openness and a valuing of it right like right. though it may not have been our family's religious um, uh, uh, tradition, or whatever. It was like, this is good. You yeah. should learn more about this. Yeah.
6: That's really wonderful. Um, something that we talk about on the show occasionally is imposter syndrome. And, you know, you shared with me that at, at some point when you were young, your mom was battling uh, severe depression and you kind of tied that a little bit to your own um, leaning towards or falling into that imposter syndrome. T- talk to me about how that connected.
7: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think generally for women, let me start there first. I think generally for women, because I certainly have experienced that throughout the course of my career and and it, and it, I would say it's better now, but even though I, I think a lot of women would look at my position and where I am in, in my career and think, well, surely she doesn't experience that at all anymore. That's not true. I mean, there's still elements and moments where that comes into play. And so I think generally, because I've been really involved in women's leadership sort of issues over time there's some real truth to the fact that sort of societally women aren't as sort of valued as men and we and we we second guess ourselves more and there's a lot of reasons mm-hmm. behind that and so mm-hmm. i think that you know um the relate the experiences i had in, as a child you know my mom i admire her so much because she was the first in her family to go to college and I remember her telling me stories about even her family, extended family members would say, why are you bothering to send her to college? Because she's just, wow, a or she's, you know, it, it just was not understood. And I, and I remember her telling me stories about when she was pregnant with my brother, she was a teacher. And in those days, you couldn't be pregnant and be a teacher because you know, God forbid the children see you're pregnant and what that conjure.
6: <laughs> know where babies come from. I
7: mean, so she hide <laughs> her pregnancy till her eighth month. Luckily, she was real. Oh my God. She had to hide her pregnancy till her eighth month. And then she had to quit a profession she loved because she was pregnant. So oh this God. is within our, gen- you know, this is just one generation removed, right? And a lot of our young female listeners probably can't even imagine that that was the reality in the 1960s. And it right. was went- my mom um, experienced some depression uh, in in when we were kids. And I think, you know, for me, I'm not so sure how much that contributed to the imposter syndrome, as much as it actually contributed to my kind of stick-to-it-ness and my kind of need to rely on myself a little bit, because there were times where she couldn't really be emotionally available right. as much as she would want to be for us, mm-hmm. and so I had to kind of figure out how to, Get what I needed a little bit from myself. Now, what that means is that, you know, you can't give yourself everything you need. You need other people, too. Right. So times when my well was dry, perhaps when I experience imposter syndrome is when I'm sort of like not sure I'm good enough. And I think when you experience and that's the the linkage, when you experience a, a parent or a family member where you know, the relationship has been challenged by, by in this case, her being depressed. I certainly had some experiences of feeling not good enough, mm-hmm. you know, sort of for my mom. And that probably contributes to the imposter syndrome. So people, there's both being a woman generally, I think we're more susceptible to it. And then if we've experienced some sort of trauma in our life, then it's going to kind of increase that likelihood a a bit and it could be with a parent it could be other trauma that women might experience that makes us question our own worthiness Mm -hmm. Um, and it really requires really really important thought work to take those thoughts that enter your mind and put them here and examine them more rationally right Mm -hmm. and say okay what your mind is telling you right now
6: doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it's not true. It's not reality.
7: It's not true. It's not reality. Yeah. And sometimes in my career, I've just had to like trust and move forward. And that's my best advice for women and young women, especially I've seen a lot of women get kind of crippled by imposter syndrome or not take that next opportunity or not apply for that job because they're sort of convinced they can't do it. And I always say to people, someone will tell you if you're not, making the cut. Someone will tell you in the interview process, if you're not good, don't do it to yourself. Yeah. Don't do it to yourself.
6: Yeah. That's great advice. Do you, do you remember when, because I'm, I'm assuming there was a turning point for you, you know, you're so very comfortable in your own skin today. And I think this is one of the advantages is to the second half, right. Of our life, we kind of stop worrying about what others are thinking. Do do you remember an aha moment? Do you remember a time or an experience where you thought, you know what? Um, I don't have to pretend anymore. I can just fully be me.
0: Wow.
7: Gosh, I don't know that there was one experience or one event, to be honest. I think it, it sort of has evolved for me. I think I would say the where it's turned for me the most, um, And especially, I I led a lot of nonprofit organizations at the local or state level. And when I took this position at the national level, that's probably where, you know, I still felt like, gosh, am I really ready for this? And do I, you know, I was going to be leading teams where I didn't have a depth of skills or expertise, but in a much larger organization. And um, what made the difference for me were good coaches and mentors, including my current boss who uh, happened to be a woman. And who could say, um, you know, you can do this. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. And then I, I really um, practice not letting fear uh, make choices for me. And there's a wonderful Nelson Mandela quote, and I'm looking to see if I can find it because I usually carry it here in my um, uh, book and I don't have it, but it's something about um, let hope be the guide for your uh, decisions and don't let fear be the guide. And so when I'm in those circumstances where I'm unsure about taking a next step, I always really try to think about, is this the fear in me that's um, informing my decision? Or again, can I just look at this rationally and uh, be optimistic about my track record and my ability to be successful in the roles that I've had?
6: Uh, We're going to go into our first break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your professional journey. Um, Stay with us and we'll be back with Katie Fitzgerald.
4: Now the women to watch finance, watch,
8: finance, watch at Penn community bank. We're committed to giving small business owners the tools and resources to help them succeed financially. Social media is an invaluable tool when it comes to growing your small business. Whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or a brand new platform rising in popularity, social media is where many of your customers will find you and engage with you on a regular basis. If you're a business owner and want to ensure your digital presence is as effective as possible, here's how to make your social media stand out in 2022. Think about what your business wants to achieve with its marketing and set simple, measurable goals for social media engagement. If you've already been using some social media platforms, Take a step back and evaluate what has been effective so far and what could use improvement. Don't be afraid of doing research. See what competitors or others with a similar business are doing online. If you're running a restaurant, use Instagram to share your delicious dishes. If you're marketing software to other businesses, LinkedIn may be the best place to build an audience. Keep your audience and their demographics in mind. If your target audience is seniors, for example, Facebook is a better choice than Twitter for reaching them. Now that you have your game plan, it's time to develop a plan and create content. This can be as involved or as simple as you like. Just do what you can manage. Determine what kinds of posts will help meet your goals, how you'll engage with your audience, and how often you will post. When it comes to social media, there's no step-by-step guide of what will work for every business. When you take your business online, it's important to pay attention to trends and adapt accordingly. As a business owner, you probably know a thing or two about adjusting and improvement. Never stop learning and growing, and success will come to you and your business. Follow Penn Community Bank on social media for more tips and resources for small business owners. Penn Community Bank, here we are, and here we grow.
1: Women to watch.
0: Sports Watch. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Jen Welker, and you are listening to Sports Watch. It's about focusing on what's in your control. can't always control the outcome, right? That's that's not in our control. You can't control the weather. You can't control the calls of the rest. You can't control a lot of things. But what you can control is the intention that you take into every situation. And that's true. If the why is right, the outcome is not fully under your control. But when you had a good reason, you can always go back to it and you can build on the things that may not have gone right, right? Like in your execution, you can get better about X, Y, and Z. But if you don't have a core, then when things go wrong, you always lose your way and you don't have something to go back to and say, you know what? This is who we are. This is how we play. This is how we fight. And we're going to, you know, we're going to play go for it football or we're going to go for a first down that we may not get. You have to know that there's a may not get it if you go for it. And yet when you have that core reason that you can go back to, there's always something to build from as you go forward. Follow me and all my adventures or you could say misadventures on welter Forty Seven on Instagram or at daywelter47 on Twitter.
4: This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back to the show.
6: I'm joined by Tony Fitzgerald, the
4: president and COO of Feeding America.
6: Um, that's a big job. You know, when I think about operations for Feeding America, it I just uh, seems very overwhelming to me. Um, I, I saw an interview you did in 2020, and you talked about the number 40 million People suffer from food insecurity in the U.S. And that was shocking to me. And I wondered, where are we today here in 2022, having gone through COVID?
7: Yeah, so it's uh, um, the last, I guess I would say, you know, three years has just been a roller coaster, right? And um, there was sort of um, there was the pandemic, the intensity of the pandemic, where we really faced a perfect storm in that uh, demand skyrocketed. As, as you know, and, and most of the listeners will know, with um, the real economic closures that we're, we were experiencing as a nation and people all of a sudden not being able to work. And um, supply chain was all gummed up. Again, as people recall, if you remember the toilet paper days as well as- yeah. Uh, you know,
6: and, and still uh, today, right? Still today, there's still today, right? issues. Yeah.
7: And then the operating model challenge, you know, food banking and the charitable food system in this country is largely a congregate activity, right? Groups of people come together, they um, organize the food, they share it and distribute it. And that's hand to hand, person to person. So we face tremendous challenge early on. What I'm so proud about with our network which we're uh, uh, the Feeding America National Network covers every county, uh, and parish in the United States, including Puerto Rico. Um, and we were able over the course of this pandemic, if you take about the, the two years of it, we have served over 10 billion meals wow. through that network. Um, but but the the issues just keep evolving. So while the econ- while people are back to work. Um, now, the issue we're facing, as, as folks are well aware of, all of us, is inflation, right? Mm-hmm. And food insecurity is an issue of economic trade-offs. So um, for low-income households, about a third of low-income households' income is spent on food. Um, and so when prices are high, as they are now, not only on food, on, on gas, on everything else, Um, People are going to just cut those budgets and that's really so, you know, what we see now is that we're seeing this ongoing elevated level of demand um, and it's been increasing over the months that inflation has been increasing. So we're in a really difficult position right now because we're still having supply chain problems, as you mentioned, the cost of securing food, even donated food for which we we pay freight um, is way high. And we're really trying to continue to meet that demand, um, and it's just an ongoing challenge for us. But we we work really hard on it every day.
6: Tell me about your volunteers. Have you seen an increase in in volunteers? And I was curious as well, male versus female. Are most of your volunteers women? <laughs> oh gosh, you know, it, um, I actually don't know. I don't have that
7: data, so I, I can't say for sure. I can only speak sort of anecdotally about it. Um, so the beauty of our network is we do rely on over 2 million volunteers a year to help source, sort, distribute food for people who are facing hunger. And that includes, you know, so there's 200 food banks, there are 60,000 partner agencies in communities, which are your local churches, your Boys and Girls Clubs, you know, all kinds of other partners that most people would would uh, readily come to mind when they think about their local community food pantries and those are largely volunteer run and driven. So it's it's a it's a largely volunteer based system in the early days of COVID. The great challenge was we had to kind of shut down our volunteer centers, right, because at the time we had no personal protection equipment. We wanted right. to, to prioritize, uh, as did everyone else, hospitals and and what was needed there. We figured out how to do things through the, the, the car drive-throughs and all of that that people saw on television. Um, now volunteers are back, which is terrific. And and I would say it's, it's such a mix, Sue. I, I don't know that it's more women than men. When I think back to being in a volunteer center right now, um, we have school groups and we have um, faith-based organizations coming in a lot of retirees, people who really want to stay active and do work, Um, but it's just a a wonderful mix of all ages, very intergenerational because everyone can relate to the value of access to nutritious food in their lives. And food brings us together and we see that in our volunteer centers across the country.
6: So when I think about the work that you're doing in the organization, and it's very basic and and obvious, you're feeding people who who, you know, need to be fed. Um, How much of your time is spent strategizing or brainstorming or thinking about how can we end this cycle? And I would imagine your team, people have different views on that and different opinions and different ideas. So I'm, I'm curious as a leader as well, how you manage uh, those different ideas and thoughts?
7: So, I mean, it's incredibly—it's just an incredible question. And it's really important that people who are listening understand that food banks and their partners across this country are here to meet the immediate emergency need. And they are very engaged in deep ongoing partnerships to move people who have the opportunity to get out of food insecurity permanently into pathways where they are food secure, where they're able to make enough money, have enough economic stability to be able to provide for their families. So we have workforce development programs all across our network where people are being trained in our warehouse operations and culinary kitchens that food banks operate so that they can get into gainful employment and be able to provide for their families. Now, there are always going to be some populations of people in our country for whom a pathway to greater food or economic stability and food security is a challenge. And that includes seniors who are living on fixed income and who don't have uh, much in the way of savings or retirement. It includes children who are living in poverty and it includes uh, people who are, who have disabilities, who may not be able to, to work. So we, we, we talk about this um, as a, uh, feed the line work and shorten the line work. And we work on that uh, in an integrated way to make sure that we're meeting people in communities where they are, we're making sure that they have food today, but that we're helping people connect to pathways uh, to greater um, economic stability and security so that they no longer need the food uh, banking system.
6: Yeah, that's that I think is so key and important because most people want to be independent. Right. Absolutely. They they want to create, you know, a, a life of their own where they can.
7: Yeah. And, you know, Sue, I, I have to just tell you this one story. So this goes back to when I was leading the um, Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma, which served uh, two thirds of the state of Oklahoma. And it was during um, a government shutdown. This precedes the pandemic. And um, all of a sudden, people um, didn't have paychecks. Right. And these were government employees. And. Um, We we set up a big distribution to help people get through this period of time. Um, There was a gentleman who came in. I'll never forget this. As long as I live, who couldn't lift his eyes up and make eye contact with us. He had tears coming down his face. He was so ashamed Mm -hmm. that I am a donor to this food bank. And all of a sudden I'm in a position where I need to come and get some help. Wow. And what we try to help, you know, so so a couple things that 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 elucidates. One is that many Americans are living paycheck by paycheck. And we saw that in you have one
0: unheard message.
1: Hi, I was calling current the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast.
7: the pandemic, right? We saw the surge of people who all of a sudden, without that paycheck, a couple weeks in, need food assistance. And I think fundamentally, there is work to be done in this country to change that circumstance, because we should not have so many families and so many people on that edge of food insecurity and economic insecurity. But the other thing that it said is that people do feel some stigma about that. And what we do try to help people understand is that they should not. We want people to get the help they need because if they can work with a food bank or a local food program to help subsidize, even in their short time of need, their food, they can keep their house payment going, keep their rent payment going, keep their car to get through their job. So many people who are utilizing the charitable food system do work. And what we don't want people to do is lose those jobs um, because they're they're, uh, you know, having to use those those uh, scarce resources uh, for food when we can help them.
6: Right. Um, tell me what you think about teaching kids about economics and money as opposed to just math.
7: Oh, 100 percent. I mean, I think um you know, we, I'm, I'm not an education expert, um, so I, I'm only speaking as an individual here, but I think I've seen, even with my own children's education, a movement back toward those life skills and sort of the ability to help young people learn budgeting and savings, the risk of credit, all those kinds of things that are gonna help young people um, really be able to understand how to manage their money moving forward. And having said that, I will say, There are a lot of people who use the charitable food system who are managing their money well. They just don't have enough of it. So, a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, we're coming out of about a 40 year period in this country where wages have not, real wages have not really grown near the rate of inflation and the costs. If you think about how education costs have changed in 40 years in this country, how healthcare costs have changed. So, there are some fundamental system. Um, challenges that people are facing and we can do more from a policy perspective to 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 make improve that. But in addition, um, we need to do all we can to help young people understand how to manage their money effectively and budget and make sure that their basic needs are are met.
6: Right. You know, one of the things I think about so often in the world that we live in, where, and I think you and I spoke about this when we first met, you know, every day, all day long, we can see and hear and know what's going on globally. And that, you know, on one side, I think it's fascinating and, and it's a learning experience. On the other side, I think it creates a lot of anxiety for people, right? Young and old, it's all, it's so much to know. So, And before we can do anything with our lives, right, and and manage anything, we need to be okay, you know, mentally. How do you manage your own anxiety? Because I know that because of your work, you see some tough things, you know, and is there advice you can give the viewers about, you know, just what your daily mantra might be when you start to feel hopeless about the, the, you know, the heaviness of it?
7: Yeah, no, I think it's, it is really our, um, our generation's challenge. Um, there's, there's great value, as you said, in having access to all the information we have about what's happening in the world. But the, the, the downside to that is we, we carry that anxiety. And I think we've seen that in our children, frankly, right. Mm -hmm. Especially during the pandemic, um, with the recent school shootings, you know, I, I said to my 19 year old son the other day, I just said, I. I can't believe the amount of anxiety that young people carry with them today, no. um, and and yet they persevere. And I have mm-hmm. such admiration for this generation that continues to persevere. For myself, I um, I exercise. That's really important. Um, I. Um, I'm trying to meditate. I do think anything that people can do, whether you, I'm, I really need, um, I, I, I'm not a big meditator, but I do try to really create space for my mind to quiet, Mm. um, and to, uh, sort of just be grounded. Um, I, I'm in like many of the, your listeners, you know, I'm in meeting after meeting all day. And usually the meetings I'm in, there are no simple answers to the challenges people are sharing. So they're, that builds anxiety for people. And what I really try to channel and with my team is um, being reflective and being curious, right? Mm-hmm. So
9: mm-hmm.
7: you don't have to come into every meeting and every ex- situation with a solution. And if you allow yourself to sit back and be reflective and to be curious, it, it gets you asking questions and it gets you more open to the range of solutions that are available and to understand that things can't be fixed overnight so there's patience in that there's curiosity in that there's reflection in that and um and then my last piece of advice is really avoid scrolling through that social media ad nauseam right <laughs> that's not good for anybody i mean i i like social media as much as the next person but if you're spending a huge amount of time there, um, that can be kind of a wormhole that's hard to get back out of.
6: Right, right. And it's so conflicting because sometimes you're seeing incredibly beautiful images and funny, funny, you know, videos and all that. And then boom, you know, something pops up that just completely switches your mindset for the day. And nobody needs that um, I wanted to ask you as well, when I think about hunger here in the United States and compared to hunger in other countries, do you spend time um, engaging with leaders of other countries and learn from them? And do they learn from us on how, you know, new programs and how to tackle it?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are peers to several food banking networks that are in other countries. So there's um food banking networks in Canada, in Europe, there's a global food banking network that we, we really partner with and connect with. Now our our um, scope and where we're focused is on domestic hunger, mm-hmm. but we share uh, lessons learned with each other and um, really try to help support each other. So especially recently with the Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine, we have done everything we can to connect our local network to folks who are working to make sure that there's food and support for the refugees working with international ref, uh, international relief organizations and the Global Food Banking Network in Europe um, to make sure that we're channeling whatever resources we can their way without taking away from the resources that we have here to serve people in this country. So, um, you know countries are different and the, the, the needs um, of, of countries uh, manifest differently. I think there are a lot of folks who look at uh, less developed nations and think, well, how can the U.S. have food insecurity if you look at less yes. developed nations? People right?
9: do ask that. Yeah. And,
8: and, yes.
7: and, you know, in our country, food is so ubiquitous that it just seems like a, not a plausible um, idea. But, but what we help people to understand is that it's all relative, right? So what we see in this country, again, is though our incomes are higher as a developed nation, though our our our, our level of living and lifestyle is better in many respects, we still have the a, a, a very real situation where families don't have enough income um, to be able to provide the nutritious food that their family needs. And that is real for people and it is causing real damage both health wise um, and in terms of those families, uh, food and economic security. So uh, it's all all very relative.
6: I have all the faith in the world in you that you're going to do it. You're already having great impact. And and um, I'm so appreciative of your taking time to share your story, Katie, and I wish you continued success.
7: Thank you. And thank you for doing the show you do, Sue, and for lifting up uh, women and helping us um, lean on each other and support each
6: other. Thank you. We're going to go into our, our next break. And when we come back, I'll be joined by Sherry Morrison, our lifestyle contributor, and she'll be profiling Victoria Wright, a designer. We'll be right back.
3: This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners.
6: Hi, welcome back to the show. You're watching Women to Watch. I'm Steve Rocco and I'm always... Thrilled and excited to welcome our lifestyle contributor, Sherry Morrison, to the show. And this week, she's going to be spotlighting Victoria Wright, a local designer in Philadelphia. So welcome both to the show.
10: Thanks, Sue. I am, as Sue said, visiting Victoria Wright in a very cool location at the Maid Institute on North 10th Street in Philadelphia. Victoria is an instructor here, an entrepreneur, designer, and has created her own label, Victoria Wright. Thank you for having us today, Victoria.
9: Sure. Thank you so much for having
10: me on the show.
6: By the way, I think Victoria Wright is a perfect name for a designer.
10: <laughs> it is. Right? It is. Check out her lapel with her little logo there. It's awesome.
6: Oh, I can't quite see it, but...
10: <laughs> <laughs> it's great looking. Anyway, before we dig into Victoria's personal label, I, I would love it if she would tell us a little bit about this location, the studio and the educational opportunities here at the Maid Institute.
9: Yeah, so I'm very proud to be a business of fashion instructor here at Maid Institute. It is an independent fashion school located in Philadelphia and offers a 12-month designer development program for aspiring designers to uh, prepare them in order to launch their own labels and as well as to start their careers in, um, in the fashion industry. Uh, we cover everything from pattern making, sewing, um, production, design, illustration, etc. Um, and in 12 months, uh, the students get a uh, fashion design certificate
10: it's, it's a great location in space. It's so much to be so much fun to be in here. Um, even when you're walking in the outside, you can't help but notice it because it has some murals on the outside and some great painting. It just looks like an artsy place. You want to walk in and say what's going on in there. And I think it used to be a bicycle factory, um, judging by the top of the uh, building and, and what you can barely read on the top of it. So anyway, so, um, Going towards your label, Victoria, your mantra is empowering women one stitch at a time. Pretty much mm-hmm. says it all. Please share your how the Victoria Wright label came to be. Sure, so I
9: started about nine years ago as a ready-to-wear line, meaning that I sold things off the rack um, through boutiques and uh, small retailers. Um, But uh, the made-to-measure portion of my line all got started when my husband got a tailor-made suit for our wedding. It was such a cool experience where he got to choose his own fabrics and everything was just made exactly to fit his body. And I thought, why isn't this available for women? And I did some research and found that it really is not easily accessible for women to have this tailor-made experience. So for those who aren't familiar with Made to Measure, how it works is a customer comes to my studio. We select a set style, like a blazer, for example. The customer chooses from a library of um, luxurious fabrics in all different colors and patterns. Uh, we choose different style details, like what kind of lapel you want, um, if you want some embroidery or a pop lining. Um, and then I measure the customer so that we make sure that the piece fits them perfectly. So you can say goodbye to Fitting Room Anxiety and hello to a tailor-made
0: wardrobe <laughs> with Victoria
9: Wright.
10: <laughs> that's, that's so cool. So when you're working with somebody, I know you, you treat them to a little bit more than just uh, fitting them and making sure that they pick everything out. you like, usually you have a little Prosecco and a little bit of things Ooh. to nibble on and you make it a really fun experience. Um, it's like going out for an afternoon. So much fun. Um, so what is your goal when you work with someone?
9: My goal when I work with with a customer is to create a look that really expresses the customer's unique personality. The smile on a customer's face when they walk out of my studio wearing one of my designs is really the greatest reward of being a fashion designer.
10: That, that's a great goal. And, you know, as we all know, we are all originals. So why not have an original to wear in your closet, right? That's um, right. You've shared some really fun stories with me. Uh, I asked you about what your first piece was and um, some of your more exciting projects. Can you share some of those with us?
9: Sure. So my first ever design was actually completely custom. So this is another service I offer where I can do something totally from the ground up, do a design special for a customer that is completely one of a kind. So my first design was actually for the International Debutante Ball in um, New York City. And it was for one of the women that was on the chair of the ball. A stylist found me and and hired me fresh out of school. And I made this beautiful emerald green um, gown for one of the board members for that debutante ball. And um, my favorite project that I'm working on at the moment, which I can't speak too much about, is a, um, but I'll, I can say a little hint, it's a wedding suit for a LGBTQ wedding. Um, and I'm very excited to be offering, you know, these non-traditional uh, wedding options and, uh, you know, wedding suits have been, been growing in popularity and it's something I initially didn't uh, realize was a niche that um, I can help with. So um, I'm really excited to be able to offer that now.
10: Well, that's very cool. It would be really fun um, since you work with women to be able to do both the both partners in the weddings outfits and maybe keep them a secret. But, you know, develop something yeah. that kind of is coordinated, but not has a, a look that ties them together and, um, you know, just makes it kind of a, a fun partnership.
9: Oh, I would love to do that. That's definitely one of my top dreams to be able to you know, outfit the whole wedding party. Can I, can
6: I ask a quick question? Is it, is it tougher to design a suit, Victoria, or a dress, or is it? neither or Ooh, that's a really uh, great question
9: you know there's challenges in each and every piece it really depends on the style you know suits we have to worry about tailoring and fitting it directly to the body but then sometimes uh different customers will want something that's a little bit of a looser fit and that's a little easier whereas if there's a dress that's very corseted and very structured that can be a lot more challenging um, using those different couture techniques to make that so um, I don't have a great answer. It's basically it depends on the design, but they each have their own challenges and they each have their own you know unique um, attributes that make them really
10: fun for me to design. Hmm, good question. Uh, i would I would imagine that suits are more difficult, but
6: Um, That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah.
10: This whole experience has been really cool for me because my mother used to make all of my clothing and um, coming into this space, she had her, my mom had her sewing room and the big tables and the sewing machine and the mannequins. And so I was a little emotional at first when I walked in.
6: um, What is it about mannequins that are so theatrical and and exciting you know just seeing her you know with all the mannequins behind her with something in creation
10: yeah they're fun they're they're, you can do so much with them right victoria definitely yeah
9: i don't know i think there's something about that you know um artisanal uh aspect of fashion design as well as um just Being able to create something that's um, really kind of seems glamorous on the outside, although, of course, there's a lot of challenges being a fashion designer. There is certainly an element
10: of glamour to it. And I think um, the mannequin is a good symbol of that. Yeah. So you have some new projects on the horizon, Mm -hmm. Um, custom coming soon, jeans and sweaters. Yes. Absolutely, yes.
9: So, one of the things I noticed that I, I think I don't know any women that have had a you know easy peasy way of finding perfectly fitted jeans. So,
10: um, bane <laughs> of our existence. <laughs> I, <know. So laughs> I,
9: I came up with a solution um, custom made denim jeans with stretch, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> They will be launching on July 1st, um, with a, it's a small selection of three different really beautiful stretch denim fabrics in different colors and washes. Um, and you can do any kind of fit you want. You can do a straight leg, skinny leg, uh, wide leg, um, cropped full length, uh, lots of different options to really customize the denim and make it really your own. Um, and then in addition for the fall time, we'll be offering some customizable sweaters so you can choose from set designs and choose what kind of color yarn you want, what type of yarn you want. And um, what kind of stitch you want? Do you want a cable knit, a rib knit, plain knit? Um, yeah. So it's a really fun, um, interactive process to get exactly the design that you're looking for.
10: I'm always so excited when I fare when I find a pair of jeans to fit and then you wash mm-hmm. them and they're like two inches shorter. And it's like,
6: oh, this this. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> if you don't wash them, then sometimes they're stiff. That's a no. good What's the secret to, I'm always questioning, do I wash them or just let them air dry, but you never get the right feel.
9: <laughs> well, I'll tell you the secret. The secret is to buy them just a little bit bigger um, if you're in between sizes, um, because they will shrink in the wash. Oftentimes it's cotton. It's just kind of a natural thing that will happen. Um, um, and then if you buy it just a little bit bigger, then it'll shrink and be the perfect size. Now, if you find the perfect size and you're just in love with it and you you're, cannot go with the bigger size, it's too big, then the trick is not to put in the dryer just to let them air dry. Um, And then they won't shrink because it's really the drying process um, with the high heat that will shrink the cotton fibers. (laughs) <laughs> no, it uh, makes it easier for you to get dressed in the morning. I hope that I can inspire confidence in women to go out and
10: solve those problems. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, that's great. So if you're tired of the dressing room blues, this could be the perfect option for you. I know I'm going to be in. Victoria, thank you for sharing this great space and your exciting venture. It was really nice to meet you and I can't wait to spend a little more time here and learn more. Um, for information, go to the website listed at the bottom of the screen, victoria-wright, that's Right as in the com. So victoria-wright.com. And I hope you will join me next week when I head to a new delicious culture in Phoenixville when we meet Olga Sorzano, founder of Baba's Brew Kombucha and Vinegar. So uh, wow. thanks so much again, and um, keep, keep living those dreams, ladies.
6: Thank you. We're going to go into our last break and we'll be back with women to
4: watch. Now, the women to watch marketing watch, how to get buy-in and launch your creative ideas. Hi there. My name is Diana Barnes or DB as most people call me. And I'm the chief brand officer and creative director at Munchkin, the world's most loved baby lifestyle brand. Today, I want to talk to you about how to get your leadership team to buy into your creative ideas. Brand building is essential to creating a business that stands the test of time. It's also one of the hardest aspects of business to measure and quantify. So how do you convince your leadership team to green light a project or a campaign that doesn't directly drive sales? Here are my three tips. First, think like your CEO. Imagine you're the CEO of your company. Ask yourself how your project supports the business. Your answer does not need to be tied to sales to be important. Does your request help position the company as a leader in its industry? Maybe it improves customer experience or boosts brand loyalty. Each of these contributes to the success of a business. Number two, timing is everything. Does your project require $50,000 that isn't in your budget? Part of creating a successful pitch is developing a successful plan, and that includes budgeting. If your idea is costly, find out when your company begins budget planning and arrange to make your pitch during the beginning of the process. And last, be flexible. My experience dealing with nuns and rock stars well prepared me for working with CEOs. My best advice is to know your facts, especially the math. Have the answers and expect the unexpected. Think about what in your plan can change to meet the requests of your leadership team without sacrificing your goal. Be flexible and be willing to work with your boss to give them skin in the game and a stake in your idea. I use these three tactics to get buy-in from my colleagues on Munchkin's executive team and our board of directors to launch Stroller Coaster, a parenting podcast. We've become trailblazers within our category, and the show was ranked among the top 2% of shows within Apple Podcast Kids and Parenting category in our debut season. You can listen to it at StrollerCoaster.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. See you next time. Now, the women to watch Military Watch.
5: Hi, I'm Carol Egger, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. You know, did you know that a military veteran actually inspired the creation of Father's Day? In 1910, Civil War veteran William Jackson Smart's wife died, thereby leaving him to raise their daughter and five sons. Smart's daughter, Sonora, wanted her father's courage and dedication to be recognized, so she petitioned to her church leaders in Spokane, Washington, requesting the church to establish a day to celebrate fathers. The community leaders settled on the third Sunday in June, and Sonora would spend the rest of her life advocating for the national celebration of fathers. Father's Day as we celebrate Father's Day this weekend, I'd like to talk about two very special men in my life who've served this country in their own way. When I told my dad I was joining the army after high school, he was skeptical. He came from a different generation and could not picture his daughter having a career wearing camouflage and combat boots. But he had prepared me for life in the military. My dad, a World War II veteran, showed me what hard work looked like. He taught me to stand up for what's right. He instilled in me the value of pursuing life-fulfilling goals. And over time, He became my biggest champion throughout my 30 years of military service. And during those decades of long days, even longer nights, and weeks and months away from training and deployment, I had an incredible partner by my side, my husband, Fran. The most difficult job in a military family is being a military spouse. Military spouses are the ones service members rely on to take care of the home, children, and other duties while we're away. I can't thank my husband enough for being such an amazing father to our three children and teaching them, through his example, to be compassionate, patient, and resilient. To all the fathers out there, happy Father's Day.
6: Welcome back again to the show. Just in time for me to wrap it up and say thank you so much to Katie Fitzgerald, the president and CEO of Feeding America. Um, she's doing some great work, and, and I'm so appreciative of her coming on the show. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors and Sherry Marson for her really fun um, lifestyle segment where we get to see some women business owners. Um, stay tuned next week for my interview with Dr. Margot Weissar. She is the founder of her own um, Springhouse Dermatology Center just outside of Philadelphia. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great week, everyone.
3: Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded.